Hey, everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. We're in the book of Revelation. And if you were here last week, you know that John, well, actually Jesus gave John, John gave it to us, the outline for the book of this series that we're in. In Revelation 1 verse 19, Jesus tells John, write what you have seen, that's chapter one. Write what's going on right now, that's chapters two and three, that's where we are. And then next week, the third part, write the things that will take place later. So if you're interested in knowing the future, then if you start coming next week uh, to this series, then you're gonna have an idea of what's coming. And by the way, no, no matter how smart a human being is, no one can tell us the future. You know, We just had the NFL draft this week, right? And you have all the prognosticators like, oh, this player's gonna be a big hit and this player could be a bust. Starting September, it's all different, right? Because it doesn't matter. Human beings just don't know the future, but God does. And one-fourth of your Bible is about the future, it's prophecy. So we're gonna start that next week. But right now, we're in chapters two and three, and as I shared with you last week, this is about what's going on today, 2023 in the United States, the rest of the world. Jesus is talking to the churches. When he shows up on the island of Patmos where John has been banished, Jesus has a message for seven churches. Seven in the Bible is the number of totality or completion or perfection. So basically, this is a message to all churches everywhere. But churches are made up of people. They're made up of individuals. So all seven churches are gonna hear the messages that Jesus gives to each individual church. And what he's doing, he is giving report cards. He is saying what he likes and what he doesn't like in these churches. Today, I want us to look at the last three churches. Last week, we looked at four, so if you weren't able to be with us last week, then you might wanna go back and watch the prequel to today's message when you get home. Today, I believe is one of the most important messages I'll ever bring. Uh, Maybe the most important message I'll ever preach. God showed me personally some things 12 years ago that I have not had permission from the Holy Spirit to preach until this week. And I'm gonna share them for the first time in a message. And as I was in personal study, I felt like the Lord, and I don't want to freak anybody out because I know what it's like. It kind of scares me when some preacher said God spoke to me and said this or that. But I'm being honest with you. I felt like the Lord at one point was just dictating to me to put stuff down. I went back and looked at that material for today's message. And the temptation for me, the homiletician that I am, was to rewrite that in the sermon form. And I thought, no, I'm going to put it in my sermon just as God gave it to me. And I'm going to give it to you today. And I really believe it's one of the most important times that we're going to ever spend together as a church. And again, I want you to understand, I'm, I'm not an expert. God speaks these things into me. I don't get any discounts because I'm a Christian or because I'm a pastor. I have to obey just like everybody else. Because even though I'm a communicator, I'm also a follower of Jesus in my own journey, my own spiritual journey. So today, I'm going to share some things with you. This is a very big, very big message today. And because of that, I'm going to ask you just to stand with me because we're going to take a time to have a prayer And Shadil's down here on the front row. I'm going to ask Shadil to pray for us, pray for me, that the Holy Spirit will open 
my heart and my lips and open your heart to what we're about to hear. Shadil, would you leave us in prayer, please? Let us bow our head and pray. God, your word declares in Jeremiah 33 and 3 to call unto you that you would answer us and show us great and mighty things which we knoweth not. Father, may we block out all the distractions and understand the importance of the time. We pray for Pastor Mark, Lord, that you would use him as the angel of this church, that we would hear your word and hear it in its totality and clarity. And then, God, that we would act upon it. And, Lord, we know that you are on your way back. And, Lord, you're preparing us for a presentation. And may we be ready. Father, we pray this in the name that is above every name, in the name that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you, my brother. God bless your heart. Well, we're going to look at the last three of the seven churches that Jesus is analyzing. And once again, we're going to take them out of order. We're going to start with the worst church first, because out of the seven churches, this is the church that got nothing but F's. This has got to be the worst title I've ever come up with. The title of today's message is F, A plus, and withdrew failing. So let's talk about the church that got all F's. But I do want to say something before we go into this. Recognize that even though this church got nothing but criticism from Jesus, it is still one of Jesus' churches. At the beginning of chapter 1, Jesus is walking among the menorah, and he says these are his churches. And this is a church that has nothing but F's, but the Lord still loves them, and he still cares. And up to this moment, he still claims them as his own. So we are interested instantly to know what could be the kind of church, what could be wrong with the church, so much so that Jesus would give this church nothing but all F's. Well, let's start here. The church is in a city called Laodicea, and Laodicea has some personality quirks as a city. For one thing, they are very wealthy, but they're also very stubborn. They're very stubbornly independent. I don't know. Maybe they're a little bit like Kansans. You know, and here's the thing. They, they, they don't want the government to interfere with them too much. And they understand that when you take government money, you also get government control. And so about, 60, or about 30 years before this, around 80, 60, 80, 62, there was an earthquake that pretty well wiped out the city of Laodicea. And the Roman government said, we will come in and help you rebuild your city. And they said, no, thanks. We will take care of this ourselves. We will pay for the rebuilding. And they did. Well, Laodicea has that personality, but as you look at these seven churches, in fact, we don't have as much time as I would love to spend looking at the personalities of each one of these churches. In most cases, these churches took on some of the qualities and personalities of the city around it. And so when Jesus tells the church at Laodicea why he's unhappy, we're going to see that some of what was in the city of Laodicea of this wealthiness, this stubborn independence, this leave us alone, we know what we're doing, this thing had gotten into the groundwater of the church. Now, oftentimes when Jesus is criticizing a church, he's pointing out something that maybe they haven't seen before, but Jesus does something very interesting with Laodicea. He quotes them. And what's pure, peculiar about that is evidently what Laodicea thought, the church, what they thought made them strong, Jesus looked at them and said, you don't understand what you're bragging about is what I don't like. Now, look at the text. You say, Jesus is speaking here to this church. 
He said, you say, this is what you say. I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. So understand this about the church at Laodicea. They can have church if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up. As we're going to see in just a moment, it is okay with them if Jesus is outside. They don't necessarily need him. They got their money. They got their preacher. They got their staff. They got their worship center. They got their lights. They got their sound system. They got their special touches. All those things are fine within their places. But to the church at Laodicea, that is what church meant. They were the strategic happening church. You know, I have a lot of curiosity when I study the Bible. And I'm always curious, New Spring, how these churches would have self-evaluated. That's big today, isn't it? You know, you know, if the question were asked, you know, if Jesus were like a modern day postmodern, he would have come to the churches and said, okay, I'd like for each one of you to evaluate yourselves and tell us, tell me what you think are your strengths and your weaknesses. But Jesus is old school, isn't he? You know, I'm always amazed. I'm an old man. And I talk to all the college students here at New Spring and they're telling me, you know, we, we have to evaluate our teachers. We, we have to send an evaluation to say whether they're doing a good job or not. Well, I went to college in the late seventies. And in those days, they weren't interested in knowing what I thought about my professors. I mean, the professors were the ones who were telling me what they thought about me. But today, I think these churches would have thought Jesus will come in and he will say, why don't you self-evaluate? Or if you're in a corporation where this goes on, it could have been, well, why don't you evaluate each other? Why don't all seven of you churches give a report card to the other seven churches? And, and I think it would have been interesting to find out from the other six churches what they thought about Laodicea. Here's Smyrna. It's the persecuted church. I mean, they're just barely keeping their doors open. I mean, they're, they're just hoping they can have another weekend of church because they're being crushed. And I think if you could have talked to the people at Smyrna and said, what do you think about Laodicea? Like, oh man, Laodicea. Now that's an operation over there. That's class. You want to see class in action? That church at Laodicea, they got the best, they got the best of everything. But Jesus looks at things differently, doesn't he? He doesn't see things the way we see. He doesn't evaluate the way we evaluate. Jesus said to this rich church, you don't realize, verse 17, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, that's a whole lot of stuff right there that was wrong with this church. Jesus like, you got your money and you don't need me. You don't understand the way heaven looks at you. You are wretched. What a word. You're wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. In other words, what Jesus was saying is that wealth that you think you have has no equity in heaven. You cannot buy in heaven what you need with your money. I can't help but notice the distinction between Laodicea and Smyrna. I've already mentioned it. The Smyrna church, if we had asked them to self-evaluate, they would have just said, well, we're just barely hanging on over here. Man, we don't, we don't have the fancy stuff. We don't have all the stuff that Laodicea has. And we're struggling. And our people are being persecuted all the time and being kicked and Put, put down. But the Lord said, you think, you're, you think you're poor, but you're rich. Because see, you don't have the stuff that this world thinks is important, but Jesus said the stuff that heaven thinks is important, you got a lot of equity in that. Do you see that distinction, that contradistinction between Smyrna and Laodicea? Now, when we get into the remedy that Jesus has, remember, he still counts Laodicea as one of his churches. When we get into the remedies, there's a very peculiar thing in New Spring. Please don't go to sleep on this. And I know you don't go to sleep, but I'm just saying, you know, I meant that metaphorically. 
I want you to hear what Jesus says to this church. A very unusual term. In fact, this is the only time I can ever remember Jesus using this verb. He said, I advise you. I mean, they're, they're big into financial advice. Jesus like, okay, I'm going to be your financial advisor here for a moment. I advise you to, look at the next verb, New Spring, buy. Buy from me. Hey, Jesus is the giver of grace. We're not talking about salvation here. Salvation is free. We're not, we're not used to Jesus saying to us, you need to buy something from me. Now, as I said a moment ago, oftentimes qualities from the community get into Jesus' message because he's speaking to them about what their, how their churches have bought into the message of the community. And Jesus says they need to buy three things from him. First of all, gold. Laodicea was known for gold. Second thing, he says, you need to buy some clothes from me because Laodicea was known for clothes. And then they, did a, they had a particular eye salve that was used all over the world. It was the best in the world. And Jesus said, you need to buy some eye salve from me. Now, what's he mean by that? Because you can't buy salvation. And clearly, their issue was not buying something with money because they could have bought it if it was money. But Jesus was like, I'm not asking you to go buy something for the church with the businesses in town. Jesus is like, I want you to come to heaven by faith and buy something from me. Are we ready for this? I hope we are. Because when we talk about the rich church Laodicea, no people in the world are richer than Americans are. You say, Mark, I'm not all that rich. The Bible tells us Solomon was the richest human being that ever lived, but you realize Solomon never had a hot fudge Sunday. He didn't have a 20-year-old Hyundai to drive. I mean, we're so rich, we don't even know how rich we are. And Jesus was saying, and here we go, here's the message right here. Here's what he meant by that. He's saying, I want you to serve me in a way that costs you something. Man, let's just keep it real. We do that here at New Spring. We hang it on the line. A lot of us as Christ followers, our relationship to the Lord, really, we can pretty well waltz through. I mean, you know, after all, I mean, we can go to church for an hour a week and listen to some Christian music and all those things are good in their places. But after all, really the fact of the matter is we can really be a Christian in name and it not really get into affecting too much how we live. I mean, we all know some radical Christians, don't we? Jesus is like, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to spend part of yourself on me. And then he says some of the most famous words in the Bible. And if you grew up in church like I did, we're going to be surprised because we know this verse very well. We, we often hear it when it's used in, in connection with accepting Christ. I use it like that here at New Spring. But what a lot of you didn't know was that Jesus spoke these words to the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3.20. He said, look, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and have a meal with you. Did you know that Jesus said that to the church at Laodicea? I mean, this is when he said, I'm standing at the door and knocking. What, what's, what's implicit in that? This is a church that's locked Jesus out. This is his church. It's got his name. They claim to be worshiping Jesus. They're singing to Jesus. And yet, where is Jesus? Jesus is on the outside knocking on the door trying to get in. Churches are made up of individuals. These people in these seven churches, they were going to hear all these messages. And on this day, 
between 2023 and New Spring Church and those of you watching around the world, watching online, we owe it to ourselves. I mean, seriously, not, not, in, not in a religious, not in a churchy kind of way. We owe it to ourselves to ask the question, could I be a Laodicean Christian? It's the second church where I see New Spring. Maybe I see New Spring here because I want to. I know it's the church we aspire to be. And it's certainly the church I think I could point to with some evidence that we are on the way to becoming, even if we're a long way away from being there. But if I could have been in any of the seven churches when Jesus gave these messages, I would have liked to have been in the church at Philadelphia. Because in contradistinction to Laodicea, Philadelphia was a church that got all A's. They got a straight A. Jesus has no criticism for them. He has nothing but praise. And he's got a special gift that he wants to give this church. And we read about it in verse eight of chapter three. Jesus said, I know all the things that you do and I have opened a door for you that nobody can close. In effect, Jesus is saying to this church, you are limited only by your own vision. I am going to open doors. That's always a term that refers to opportunity in the Bible. The Lord is saying to this church, I'm gonna give you opportunity. I'm gonna give you unlimited cachet, unlimited opportunity for the kingdom of God. Anything you try for the kingdom of God, you will not be shut out of. Jesus would have said, he said earlier in the text, I am the one who opens a door and nobody can close. And he said, I am the one who closes a door and nobody can open. I've had the privilege of being your pastor now for almost four decades. I don't know how I got old so fast. I don't know. Somebody asked me, do you ever watch your videos? I'm like, no, I don't want to watch that old guy. I was 28 when I came here. But I got to tell you what I've watched in the last almost, it will be 38 years in June. I have watched as anything God puts on the heart of this church, impossible though it may be, he makes happen. I got to tell you, I could testify as your pastor, there has never been a day in these last 38 years where we needed something that God did not have it here for us. <laughs> now he might run me right up to the day before. I remember when God put on my heart to relocate. And it took eight years from, I started looking for land in 1991. We had our first service here in May of 1999. It was an eight-year process, and it was impossible for seven years and 51 weeks. There are things that God has allowed me to go through that are so precarious, I don't even like to look back on them. It's too scary to look back. Do you realize that the week before we had our first service here, we closed on the sale of our old property on Monday. We closed on the mortgage for the new property on Tuesday, and we had church services here the following Sunday. I can't, I, that's the scariest. I, I can't believe we did crazy stuff like that. And I got to tell you, all that time I got told over and over and over, what you're dreaming of is impossible. It's impossible. But you're here today. And I remember in 2004, God just really burdened my heart that even though we had a number of people coming, a thriving television ministry, I would drive the streets of our city and I would think we're not really reaching people. 
We're reaching Christians. We're reaching a lot of people who are like us, but we're not building bridges to people who are spiritually unresolved. I realized that our message, unintentionally so, we would talk about people that needed Jesus, but our culture was set up to pretty well kowtow to those who were already believers. And that's the nasty little secret in American churches, that there's this consumer mindset where if a person comes into a church, it is give me what I want and make me feel comfortable. But if someone doesn't know Jesus, they walk into a culture they can't understand, and it doesn't make any sense to them. And I just decided we were going to stay with the Word of God. We wouldn't vary from the Word of God one centimeter. But if somebody could show us a way where we could build a bridge to people who needed Jesus, we would change our methodology, and we would do anything. We would keep the Word of God just as it was, but if there was a way we could set the table for somebody that didn't know Jesus, we were going to do it, and we were going to fight for the next generation. You would have thought that would have been real popular, but I got to tell you all, heaven broke loose. And I would have thought it different. I would have said something different back in 2004. Oh my word, it was difficult, so difficult. And, and I'm not, I don't even want to go into that. But I just remember in those days, there were those who said, this church will fall apart and nobody will want to be part of that church. <laughs> That's got to feel funny to you when you have a hard time getting a seat, the traffic jams that you get in. You know, and I remember there were those who said they're going to have to close their doors because they won't have the money. You know, those that gave the money, and that wasn't true, but they're, they're not there. And, and I, remember, I remember hearing, they'll never have 600 people there. And I remember in the worst part of it, I was so distraught because every day brought some new crisis. And, and I said to Mary Alice, we're going to go to dinner. We're going to find some way to be happy for just a few moments. We're going to just block out all the stuff that's happening, just focus on each other and just try to go to dinner and, and believe that we're going to be okay. So we were over here at Red Rock and, and we were sitting down to dinner and we were trying to avoid all the stuff that was happening and talk about other things. But around the corner from me was a pastor of another large church in our city who was there with his staff. He's no longer in our city. And they were talking about us. He didn't know I was there. And he said to his staff, I don't know why he would want to blow up his church. I did, sitting there, I didn't know why either. But he's, <laughs> he said he had the happening church. They got the great location. They had the television ministry. Why on earth would he want to blow up, blow up his church? And I heard in those days, it's impossible, but I watched as God rebirthed us and turned us into New Spring Church, where for the last two weeks, over 72, over 7,500 people have attended New Spring Church. I've watched as 100 people would accept Christ each week through this ministry. Why is that? Is it because you have an extraordinary pastor? You have the most subordinary pastor in the world. Is it because we have the greatest people? We have the most genuine people, but we're not the smartest people in the world. Is it because we're a rich church? No, we're a generous church. The deal is this. There is a door that has been opened for this church that I promise you for the last 38 years I have watched as nobody could close this door. It doesn't matter what was said, what was prophesied by the naysayers. The door has been opened and I want you to know and I want to testify before the Lord today, I did not open that door. I cannot keep it open. It is not the people or the staff that has opened this door. It is Jesus. Jesus said, I have set before you an open door. And here's the part that is worth coming for today, even if you're not even a new springer. 
This is, churches are made up of individuals. If you will do what the Philadelphian church did, the Lord will set before you personally an open door. He will set before you doors of opportunity that there will be people that's like, I don't know how she got that. I don't know why she got that promotion. I don't know why he got her. Well, you won't have to worry about it because it's not something that your humanity can tell you. It is the Lord has set before her an open door and nobody can close her door. I was driving here today and I thought, oh Lord, I don't ever want to forget who opened the door. What was it about Philadelphia that Jesus loved so much? Well, first of all, they must not have had the problems that the other churches had or he would have criticized them for it. They must not have lost their love like Ephesus. They must not have been rewriting the Bible to suit political correctness like Thyatira and Pergamum. I mean, on and on. They must not have had the other problems, but fortunately, Jesus tells us what he loves about these churches, this church. Now, in verse eight, there are three of these four things. So let's look at them real quickly. The first thing the Lord said is a real shocker. The Lord said, I know that you have little strength. Now, if you had asked the people or the pastor at Philadelphia to self-evaluate, they would have said, well, you know what? We have some good things. We have some sweet people. We love the Lord, but we have a real problem. We just barely make it from week to week. Man, by the grace of God, we made it through last weekend, but we were just hanging by our fingernails, and we don't know how we're going to make it next week. It takes us so many volunteers. I mean, and, and we, we just don't know how we can have church. We just don't have the strength. We, we, we want to give it our best, but we just barely make it from week to week, and that is our problem. But the Lord comes along, and he says, I like that. That's what I like. I like the fact that you're just barely hanging on. And every once in a while here at New Spring, and it takes us a 1,000 volunteers to pull off a weekend here, we hear people that come in our church, and they're new, and they say, you know what? New Spring Church is like a well-oiled machine, and they don't need me. What you don't understand, every staff person knows, most of our volunteers know, we are hanging by our fingernails. Every weekend, it's like, maybe we'll make it through this weekend. But the beauty of it is the Lord is like, I like that. I like that. You're not like Laodicea that says you don't need me. You're desperate for me. He said, I know that you have little strength. Good. And then he said, you have kept my word. What does that mean? Circle the word kept. Because you see, sometimes people don't want to keep the Lord's word because in 2023, it's politically incorrect. And so from time to time, there are churches that's like, well, we don't have to talk about this. We, 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 you know what? It's not politically correct. We're, we're going to let that part of God's word go. It's kind of a salad bar thing. We pick some here. We pick some there. I like macaroni. I don't like broccoli. <laughs> but when you keep the Lord's word, you keep it all. And then he said, you've not denied my name. Oh my, this is big. Because you know what? There's this cosmopolitan feeling today that says Jesus Jesus is a little unpopular. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've been asked to do invocations and do messages for um, organizations. 
And it's like, we would love to have you come and talk, and we would love to have you come and pray, but we're going to ask you to pray a non-sectarian prayer. In other words, is we would like to have you, but don't bring Jesus with you. Well, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm nobody, but if you get me, you get Jesus because he lives inside of me. And you know what? It may sound very cosmopolitan and good to say, well, I think there are all kinds of ways to heaven. Your problem with that is the word of God. Because Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus on the night of his arrest in John 14 verse 6 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by me. Now, as Carmen said, it's tight, but it's right. But Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia, even though you're under pressure to be cosmopolitan, the Lord is like, you've not denied my name. By the way, let me ask you a question. If you think there are other ways for you to get to heaven, what exactly would those ways be? Who died for you if not Jesus? Hmm. Now, the fourth thing that Jesus likes about the, this church is implicit. It is implied, but it's very clear because what did the Lord say to them? He said, I've set before you an open door. Did you know there are only three other references to an open door in the New Testament and they're always in marriage in conjunction with the idea of building bridges to people who are spiritually unresolved? Let me read them to you. Colossians 4.3, Paul said, pray for us that God may open a door to us for the message. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul said, there is a wide open door for a great work here. So every time you read about open door, it's always in the context of people getting saved. And so I draw from that that what Jesus loved about the church of Philadelphia was evangelism. And by the way, evangelism is not proselytizing. Proselytizing says, join my religion. Evangelism, the word evangelist, comes from two Greek words, U, E-U, which means good, and angelos, which means message. Evangelism is good messaging people. And the Lord was saying to this church, I love the way that you reach outside your doors. It's not about just the holy huddle where people that already love Jesus get together and huddle Jesus like, I love the way that you open your doors and fling all your doors open wide to reach people. Well, we've seen the two opposite churches, haven't we? We've seen the all F's church and we've seen the all A's church. But I want to spend the main part of the time that I have left on this last church. Because in these last days, and we are in the last days, this church is the type of Christian that is the most common of all in our times. When Christianity in America has been analyzed, we have been in a steady decline at least since the 50s. And all the markers prove that we've been in a steady, gradual decline. But something has happened in the last three years. There are those who attach it to COVID or the shutdown from COVID, but there, there's no doubt that there has been something in American Christianity in these last three years that is a different animal. I was watching it 
experience. I, I was watching it anecdotally. I don't see it at New Spring. New Spring is such an oasis that when I have the privilege of being with you, I don't, I don't watch this decline. But when I go and speak in other places, I was noticing this decline. But now the analysis caught up with my anecdotal observation. There is a group called the Barna Group, which measures trends in American Christianity. And just this week, there was a body of data released about the feelings of people who claim to be born again Christians. When Americans are asked, would you consider yourself a quote, born again Christian? 33% of Americans say, yes, I am a born again Christian. These are the only people who were measured. Now, I should tell you before I get there that Marna also measured how many Americans have a biblical worldview. Now, we're not talking about a whole lot of nuanced Christianity. We're not talking about what do you believe about eschatology. We're not talking about are you charismatic or non-charismatic. We're not talking about all those kinds of peripheral, perhaps, things. What we're talking about is just bedrock, maybe six or so basic concepts that all Christians should hold to. I want you to understand that when Americans are asked about their worldview, only 4% of Americans today have a biblical worldview. Now, you, some of you are skilled mathematicians. If 33% of Americans claim to be born again and only 4% of Americans have a biblical worldview, how many, what percentage of born-again Christians, per se, would have a biblical worldview? And the answer comes back roughly one-third. So when American born-again Christians were asked the question, do you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life? Which that's just core. I mean, if Jesus didn't live, if he was a sinner, forget about going to heaven, pack your bag for hell. Because if he's, not, if he's a sinner, he's just like you and me. He can't even save himself. It wouldn't matter if he died a thousand deaths. If he's a sinner, he's going to hell too. American born, born agains were asked the question, do you believe that Jesus was sinless? Well, three years ago, 58% of born again Christians said, yeah, we believe that he was sinless. For some reason, there's this precipitous drop off in the last three years and it's dropped to 44%. Three years ago, when the question was asked, do you believe that you have a unique God-given calling or purpose? 88% of born-again so-called Christians said, yes, we believe that we have a divine purpose that God is calling us to a specific mission. In three years, it dropped from 88% to 46%. Do you believe the Bible is clear in its teaching about abortion? Three years ago, 58% said, yes, we believe the Bible is clear. It's dropped to 44%. When the question is asked, are you deeply committed to practicing your faith? Three years ago, 68% of so-called born-again Christians said, yes, I'm deeply committed to practicing my faith. It's dropped to 48% in just three years. And when the question was asked, do you attend church? Only one-third of those who claim to be born-again Christians attend church. Now, I find this interesting that roughly one-third of Born-again Christians have a Christian worldview and roughly one-third attend church. I'm not sure it's the same third. I just found that to be an interesting statistic in just three years. Now, the reason I say all that before I read to you what Jesus said about this church is I think you'll understand. Now, listen, Jesus said, I know all the things you do. 
that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Now I got to tell you, I, all these comments that Jesus makes in Revelation 2 and 3, they get my attention. This one literally takes the breath out of me. Because again, we're not talking about a church self-evaluating. We're not talking about church being evaluated by others. We're not even talking about the church being evaluated by the people inside the church. This is Jesus. Jesus said, I know you. I look at your works. You have a reputation for being alive. As I've talked to you throughout this message, I wonder how they would evaluate each other. If you'd ask the other six churches, which church do you think here is number one? I wouldn't be surprised if the other six churches would have said Sardis. Man, everybody knows. Everybody knows about them. Man, they got a reputation. It is a going church. It is a happening church. And yet Jesus said to them, it's all a charade. You got a reputation for being alive, but Jesus says, I know you. You're dead. Now, the easiest thing, if I were sitting out in New Spring or watching online or television, the easiest thing to do would, say, would be to pass this all off and say, this is not for me. He's talking to a church in the first century. But before we do that, wouldn't we be wise to ask the question, could Jesus be talking about me? I need to ask myself that question. Hey, most of us have a reputation for being a Christian. Jesus said, you have a reputation for being alive. A pastor could be in this position. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. In other words, Jesus was saying, people see you one way, but I see you totally the opposite. It is the easiest thing in the world to see ourselves through the eyes of people who base their assessment of us on what they see. Especially in this time frame. We live in a world today where... You know, people are careful not to shame. People are careful not to say anything that could be taken the wrong way. People tell us how wonderful we are, how effective, how special. And after a while, it's easier to believe those words. It's easier to believe that than the nagging concerns we have that are growing below the surface. Those fears that whisper in the midnight hours that we are not the person that people think we are. Jesus said, you have a reputation for being alive but you're dead. Now, there are only two possibilities here. First possibility was at one point they really were alive. At one point, this, this church could have been red hot for God. Maybe that's when they garnered that, that reputation. I mean, maybe at one time they really were the real deal, but after a while they sort of slid back. But you know what? They said, we're going to protect our reputation. We're going we're to keep the reputation. Or the other possibility was they never were anything and they just put all, they were like a, a movie set town in Hollywood. They put all the emphasis in the front, in the facade. But there's no getting around the fact that we are what Jesus thinks we are. We're not an average between what Jesus thinks and how others see us. We are what Jesus says we are. You are kind to me. You're loving. You've said so many kind things to me, and I appreciate those things, but I always remember this. I am no more, no less than how Jesus sees me. That is all I am.
And I know it's uncomfortable, but I just think you and I both owe it to ourselves to ask ourselves, is there any possibility there's a part of me at least that could be a Sardis Christian where I've got energy going into what people think I am, but deep down inside, Jesus sees me differently. Well, the good news for the rest of this message is that Jesus is going to give this church a way out of this. He's going to give them a way back. He's he's not going to push them away. For the next few verses that we're going to look at, Jesus is going to say, here's what you need to do. And this is true for a church. You could be watching us at New Spring today, and you could be part of another church, and you're like, Mark, our church is dead. But the good news is it can come back to life. If you're a dead person spiritually, you can come back to life today. Just follow, follow the plan of our Savior here. Now, there are four things. I'm going to read them all to you in verse 2 and 3. Jesus said, number one, wake up. Number two, strengthen what little remains, for even what's left is about ready to die. Number three, go back to what you heard. Verse three, and believed at first, hold to it firmly. Number four, repent and turn to me again. Now, for the last few moments of the message today, I'm going to go over those things and then we'll be through. For the church that has a reputation for being alive but is really dead, Jesus said, first of all, wake up. Wake up. Very clearly, he's not referring to the nocturnal, senseless passing of time and physical sleep, but he's talking about a spiritual sleep. One day bleeds into another. Issues come up and dissipate. Mundane pursuits fill up the hours. Simply put, the meaningless crowds out the eternally significant. It's easily done. Days morph into weeks, which turn into months that slide into years. And before you know it, we sleep our lives away. And we wake up and we're 40 years old. And we don't know how we got here. Over 50 or 60. In all that time, we're making money and buying stuff that we sell at garage sales. And we think we are living life. But in reality, the world has hooked us up to its IV and told us to count backward. And we are anesthetized. But that's not what Jesus saved us for. He saved us to live a life for him. He saved us to live a life of the supernatural. He saved us to live a life of miracles. And so Jesus is saying to this church that has a rep for being alive but's dead, Jesus is saying, wake up. Wake up. Is it possible that you and I are getting a wake-up call today? Well, let's go to the second thing. Jesus said, strengthen what remains that's ready to die. In other words, you got a little flicker of spiritual life in you. There's a part of you that every once in a while, you, you look, to, look my direction. Every once in a while, you start asking yourself tough questions about your spiritual walk. And the Lord is like, it's there. It's just, there's not much of it. And, and it's getting weaker all the time. And Jesus is like, strengthen that part of you. The actual Greek word there means to establish. W.E. Vine in his dictionary of biblical words, Vine says it means to set. It means to make firm or solid. It, in other words, a church at, at Sardis was like a church that had too much water in its concrete and it, it, it just wasn't set. In other words, one day they might believe what the Bible said, but the next day they might believe what's politically correct. Or with, with one group of people, it's like, well, you know, I don't know if what the Bible says is really true or not. But when you're with the church crowd, then all of a sudden, yeah, bless God, what the Bible says is what the Bible says. In other words, they had a little life there, but Jesus said, you need to set that in concrete. 
In effect, Jesus was saying enough of that kind of thinking and living. Decide what you really believe. Set it in concrete. Live out your faith. No more wishy-washy living. Know the difference for sure between what's right and what's wrong. Worship with sincerity. Pray with passion. Serve sacrificially. Share your faith. Be radical about loving and following Jesus. Set it in concrete. Back in the 90s, we used to say, get real. Get real. And then number three, go back to what you heard and believed at the first and hold on to it. I know that many of you have come to faith in Jesus recently, and sometimes I think you have the advantage over us who've been in church all our lives because for you, you came to faith as an adult or as a young person, and you're always excited about Jesus, but some of us grew up in church. Hey, I'm a pastor's kid. I heard the gospel before the meter of my memory started running. I don't even know the first time I heard about Jesus. But there is a problem with being a longtime Christian, and that is we've heard these same messages time and time again, and after a while, we can become desensitized to the most important messages in the universe. Every weekend at New Spring, practically, I give the gospel. I give people a chance to pray and receive Christ. We are amazed. We've had several weekends recently where over 100 people have accepted Christ. And I get to the end of the message. There could be someone here who is like, well, Mark is getting close to closing down. It's time for me to pull my stuff together and start hoping I can get out of the parking lot without a parking jam. And I wonder if they're going to have my table at the restaurant ready and and the most important thing is happening all around you. People are praying to receive Christ, and you're not praying for them. You're worried about how you're going to get to your car. You didn't mean to get that kind of dead spirituality in your life, but that's where you are. You've just heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it. And familiarity turned to commonness, which turned to boredom, which has turned now to cold ritual. And Jesus says, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. You need to wake up and you need to establish what you really believe and go back to what you first heard. You know, one of the silliest things that I ever hear from Christians, and we don't have it here at New Spring, but this idea that, well, we need to go deeper. You know, in other words, there's some sort of elevated 33rd degree Christian that you can become. One of the greatest places to hide an absence of spirituality is through falling into deep learning of complexity about God. Hey, everything you can learn about God is beneficial, but most of us do not need to go to spiritual grad school. We need to go back to spiritual kindergarten. Man, I know pastors, I know Christians who they know so many facts about the Bible, but it's curious to know if they really know Jesus or not. Yeah. Jesus is saying, go back and rediscover the gospel. Have a second honeymoon. Fall in love with me all over again. And then he said, hold on to it. It's not enough to just sit in a service and have a moment where we say, Jesus, I need to do better. Okay, what's on television this afternoon? I mean, it is the nature of wake-up calls to pass. You follow the history of God's people from the book of Genesis all the way to Kansas in 2023, and the one thing you will discover is God will scare, you know, there will be something in life that scares a God follower, and he's open for a while to getting right, but when the moment passes, he slips right back again. 
You know, when he's afraid of losing his job or when he's waiting on a biopsy report, he suddenly gets very spiritual. I mean, in that moment of concern, he's ready to confess to everything up to the Kennedy assassination. But when that moment passes, he's right back where he was. Now, Jesus is saying to the church of Sardis, I don't want any of that kind of stuff. If you want to get serious, if you want to get real, if you want to wake up, if you want to set in concrete what's still there that's about ready to die, if, if, if you want to go back to what you first believed, Jesus is saying, do that, but hold on to it. Don't let it go. And then my favorite line, and this is a line that God spoke to my own heart about something that needed to happen in my own life. The Lord said, repent, and I love these words, turn to me, turn to me. I think that tells us more about what was wrong with the church at Sardis than anything else. If Jesus had to tell them to turn to him, they must have been turned away from him. And that's easily done, isn't it? Because it's so easy for this world to get our attention for this and this and all these bright, shiny toys that it throws out there, the, those, those nagging anxieties that scream at us all the time. And the Lord is saying, turn away from all that stuff and just look at me again. Oh, I need to hear that today. Do you? That old song that we used to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and that lyric that says, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. See, the problem that we have is the things of this world are inordinately bright, and Jesus is dim, but Jesus said, turn back to me. Come back. Oh, you know what I love about this new spring? I'm expecting Jesus to say, go away, and instead he's saying, come back to me. Come back to me. Well, I'm out of time. But I got to tell you, in these two weeks where we've been looking at what Jesus says about what's going on right now, we need to ask ourselves a question. What do I need to do? Am I a Laodicean Christian? I got everything I need? Jesus said the problem was they were lukewarm. Little, little, little hot, not much. Could I be like an Ephesian Christian? I'm still working hard. I love Jesus. I love the church, but I'm kind of... My love is not where it used to be. I don't love people the way. I, I find myself doing these things out of duty. Hey, no wife wants a husband to do what he does out of duty. She wants him to do it because he loves her. Am I an Ephesian Christian? Busy? Love waning? Could I be a sleepy Christian like the church at Sardis? Oh, here's a big one. Could I, I be a Thyatiran Christian? A Pergamum Christian? We're like, you know what? I know the Bible says this, but this is politically incorrect. Yeah, I'm just going to leave that alone. And I'm going to say, well, that lifestyle is fine. You'll be popular in this world. You're just going to have a problem with Jesus. Or you may be a Smyrna Christian. Last night before the four o'clock service, I was kind of walking through the worship center and meeting people that came in and a sweet lady came in. She had oxygen, had, it was around, she had the tubes around her face. And I'm kind of saying hello to everybody and everything. I said, how are you doing tonight? She said, not real well. She said, a couple hours ago, I didn't know if I was going to be able to make it here tonight. I'm not doing very well. She said, but I'm here. I could be talking to a Smyrna Christian today. You don't think you're doing very well. 
You don't feel like an overcomer today. You're just dealing with too many problems. Maybe in your health. Or maybe in a relationship. And you're like, Mark, I just barely made it in today. It was everything I could do just to put on my clothes and get dressed and get in my car and drive over here. You need to hear the words of Jesus that says, you may feel poor, but you're rich. You're rich. You may not have what this world thinks is big, but you've got what I think is big. Am I talking to a Smyrna woman today? Rock on. Rock on. Am I talking to a Smyrna man today? You just feel kicked around by this world. You hang on. You hold on. I mean, that's what Jesus wants. You're here today. You're loving Jesus. You're serving Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's what I like. You're not one of these Laodicean people that don't need me. You're not one of these people that changes what you believe because of the times you're holding on to me. And you feel weak today, but you're rich. You're rich. Oh my, I'm so over time, but I've enjoyed this today. Have you been glad to be in God's house today? Okay, let's just have a moment of prayer. You and I need to self-evaluate with the words of Jesus. Oh Lord, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Change us from the inside out. Correct what you want to correct. I pray for those who are going through difficult times today. May they feel that they are rich because they have the promises of Jesus. And now, Lord, as we open up this back door, the front door, side door, to those who will be receiving Jesus, will you hear the prayers of those of us who have been blessed already to find living water as we pray for our brothers and sisters and friends, not just here but around the world, who are about to trust Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, pray with me a little more. If you're here today watching online, North Auditorium, watching on television, watching around the world even, and you're just like, Mark, I want to be sure that I have a relationship with Jesus. I want to know that Jesus has saved me, forgiven me, cleansed me, made me God's child. That's not in a religion. It's not in a church. It's in Jesus personally. And he has a promise on the table for you, and it goes like this. If you will... If you will declare spiritual bankruptcy. If you will tell God that you're a sinner and you will believe that Jesus died for you, if you will believe that he arose from the grave and invite him into your life, he's at the door and knocking, he will come in. He's promised. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to pray it slowly. You can decide if you want to repeat this after me. You don't have to pray it out loud, but you can pray it in your heart. And if you want to be sure that you're a believer, you can pray with me today. It goes like this. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner, and I can't save myself, but I believe you love me very much. I believe you died for me. I believe your blood paid for my sin, and I believe you rose from the grave. And dear Jesus, save me. Make me God's child. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Please, just hang with me a few more seconds. If you just pray with me, I have a gift I want to give you. There's a, a gift box, and it's got a New Spring Bible, a book I wrote called My New Walk with Christ, which will give you some simple answers, short book, and some other cool things. If you're watching us online, text the word PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97,000. 
follow the steps, we will mail this to you. But all over our campus, if you're here and you just pray with me, you can take this with you right now. All you have to do is text PRAY to 97000, and you'll see the info centers. You'll recognize them by this coloration. And then just go back and say, I pray with Mark today. They won't hassle you, bother you, ask for your routing number or anything like that. They just want to give this to you, and you can take it with you. Well, thanks for being here. Next weekend, we open up the rapture. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.